0: All right. Thank you for everyone for coming. So you may have already heard, or maybe you're just finding out the hard way now that Carol and Kim could not be on the podcast today. So it has fallen to me to be able to pick up and uh, follow up on the talk that I gave at the Advanced Symposium a couple of weekends ago. Um, I I just want to start off by saying uh, thank you so much for all of the comments, the feedback. I mean, people were coming up to me afterwards uh, thanking me for the talk. I'm, I'm blown away by the sheer amount of emails that I've gotten from everybody thanking me for the talk. Um, and even when I posted on the Facebook page saying that we were going to do this today, you guys are just throwing love my way and, and and I would be remiss if I didn't express some gratitude and thanks for that um, as we kind of move through all of this. But. Nonetheless, I have about two hours of presentation material set for you tonight. Again, this is all going to be recorded if you can't stay the whole time. I understand it's probably getting a little bit late in the East Coast, but if you can't stay this whole time, it's going to be pre-recorded. And this is a a piece, again, now this is a six-hour talk normally, eight-hour talk really, and it's bundled down to six. And we're going to do about two hours of that material. It's going to be an expansion upon what we talked about. At the advanced, but if you didn't see the advanced materials, I, I would highly recommend that you, you purchase those, not just for my talk, but there was a bunch of other really exceptionally good speakers too, talking about a lot of really helpful things gave me a ton of ideas after this year's advance of things to try with my patients. But it's, if you haven't, if you haven't seen the advanced, you'll hopefully still get quite a bit out of this. Um, this is again built around functional medicine. So there is some ideas for, for physical medicine, but really more so built around the idea of functional medicine And this is going to be a microcosm of when next year, Carol has very, again, thankfully and and very humbly asked me to do the pre-presentation before the advance next year. So you'll get the full six hours drinking from the fire hose uh, next year, and we'll tear the house down with that and the science that is just mind-bending. But for right now, I know a lot of you are like, well, I don't want to wait till next year. So we wanted to give you a little bit of a snippet of what this is. So again, really from me, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for all the outpouring of love. I really appreciate it. The chat bar is up. So if you have questions as we go through all this, hit them up in the chat bar. And at the end of this, after the presentation's over, we'll do a whole bunch of Q&A. If it's something I can answer on the fly, I will. But keep those questions going, because I really want this to be about giving you the information that you need to help serve your patients and your individual practices. And then at the end of this, after the two hours, we'll hang around and, and do as much Q&A as we possibly can. My kids are at martial arts training tonight, so I'm a free man until they're basically done. So we'll we'll play and we'll, we'll answer as many questions. Or you can always tag me in the FSM practitioners group. And with other questions, if you do watch this, maybe on video and you have another question, tag me on that. I will do my best to kind of get back to you. So Without further ado, I want to make this more about you. I, I've said my thank yous. I want to make this more about getting you guys this info over here. So I'm going to jump on over to my PowerPoint. So just um, bear with me here for just one second. We're gonna we're gonna share some screens here, if we can share some screens. Okay, so um, so Kevin, if you are on, it's saying that the host will not let me share my screen. So I was going to share a PowerPoint. So I'm not sure if you can open me up to do that. Yeah, go ahead and try it now. All right, here we go. Super, super. All right, we're sharing over, and then we're gonna go into, into big boy practitioner All right. All right, so here we go. So buckle up everybody because we're gonna move through, <laughs> we're gonna move through this. Again, this is even a lot of information. And of course, I probably bit off more than I could chew, but I wanted to try to get you guys as much information as I could get you to go over all of this information about what we're going to look at when it comes to this. So this is an expanded idea of the topics we talked about at the actual course a couple of weekends ago. And I decided to name this contrarian care philosophy when it comes down to a functional medicine model, because I think it's important for us to challenge the way that functional medicine is traditionally practiced, because the model inherently has flaws. And I say this with love and respect and all of those different types of things. And there's a tremendous amount of good that can be done with it. But I've taken pretty much every functional medicine course that's out there. I spent the better part of my earlier years in practice traveling weekend from weekend to seminar to seminar to try to get all this information to figure out what the best way that I could help and serve my patients were. And for those of you who probably have heard my personal story before, my mom got diagnosed with chronic lymphocytic leukemia while I was in chiropractic school. So it beared my course off while I was going to go do all my chiropractic stuff. It changed everything for me because now all of a sudden my mom became patient zero, where I had to figure out what I could do to try to help her to the best way of my ability. So first things first, go with me on this because what we want to cover as we go through this here. So I want to expand upon the roadmap for treatment the number one complaint I get about from doctors about doing functional medicine is that it's difficult. There's so many different protocols and there's so many things to focus on. There's so many different things to try. And then I get that. And that was really because there is no roadmap for treatment. Just like Carol has done a great job of giving us a roadmap for physical medicine. You know, you treat the nerve, you treat the disc, you treat the core, right? Those are great. We don't really have that in functional medicine because most of the time we're treating the disease, And we're not treating the person and the physiology, which caused them to get the disease to begin with. So I think that mentality has to shift. That's one place where it helps to begin with. And we want to focus on hitting the highest leverage points that we can possibly do. Now, some of this is nutritional, but I will tell you a lot of this is capable of being done because of the tools and technology that we have in our offices, FSM being one major one of those. But before we can even get into either of those things, the first thing that we have to do is install a central thesis of disease. This is really, in my opinion, what's holding functional medicine back from becoming really the standard of care that really needs to be given is because, and this is also what makes it so difficult, is because if you define functional medicine, it says, well, okay, functional medicine is to find and correct the cause of disease. Great. That sounds awesome on paper. What is that? What is that cause of disease? And they don't really tell you. Well, I say, well, it depends. It depends what the disease is. Now, again, in that mindset, that's working a disease care model that every disease has different causes. has nothing to do with the human body versus where we want to work a body-centric model of disease expression. Hopefully that makes some sense, but we can't do that unless we have a core thesis of disease. Now, all natural medicine has that you know, chiropractic has the subluxation interfering with the nervous system. Acupuncture has theirs. Naturopathy has theirs. Everybody has that in natural medicine. And it's basically the same thing. We just call it different things with semantics and nomenclature, but it's basically these same ideas. Functional medicine doesn't have that, which again, gets a lot of pushback from natural doctors, especially because they're saying, well, this is really just, just medical. You know, this, this is just practicing medicine with vitamins. And then I can understand that standpoint too, but not unless we put in this central thesis of disease. So I also want to talk about the role that microcurrent, obviously, since this is why we're all together here and this is our commonality, the role that microcurrent plays in functional medicine. Microcurrent is great because it allows us to run right at the tissue, right? If this hurts, we can work on that tissue specifically. If this tissue has a problem or this organ has a problem, we can work on that organ specifically. And that is an incredibly powerful tool to have in our arsenal. But the flip side of that is it also allows us to target higher leverage points. That may not be necessarily running at the first thing, right? If somebody has an autoimmune disease and it's say at the thyroid, we don't have to run directly at the thyroid. We can use microcurrent to treat higher leverage points around what causes autoimmune to begin with in the first place. And that's a very powerful ideology because now again, now we're treating the whole system. And it's like I, I said, when we were at the conference, you know, my expectation when I take an autoimmune disease patient is we want those antibodies to go away. Yeah, we can improve function. We can do all those different types of things, but we're, we're talking about resolution of the problem. And microcurrent is a major way that I'm able to affect that because I can target higher places of leverage that play a role in the formation of autoimmune disease, and I can target the individual tissue. But that doesn't happen until later. You know, if somebody has Hashimoto's, say, for example, for an autoimmune, that's the last, I don't treat thyroid first. I'm on into other things of which creating the immune system's response towards the thyroid to begin with. So again, looking at is don't fall in love with running right at the problem. You have to look at the bigger picture of the whole system. And that's really what the rest of this talk is about today. So I want to go into just a few contradictions and paradoxes of functional medicine, because this is especially going to happen in the patient's mind, not even in just in our minds. It adds complexity to our world for sure. But it's easy for the patient to become distrusting when they start to be able to poke holes in the philosophy of what we're ultimately trying to do, right? So functional medicine, central thesis of disease, right? So what is the true cause of disease? They tell you they don't really know. But the most common answers you're going to get is, well, it's dietary. The food is bad. And trust me, on, on social media, I put up you know, questionnaires and say, you know, hey, what do you think it is? Number one answer is people's like, well, our food source is bad and it's not the same and it's laden with chemicals and all these different types of things. And that's true, right? There's, there's, no one's going to argue that fact. But have you ever sat with a patient who has all kinds of problems and they tell you, doc, I don't get it. I'm the healthiest person in my family. I watch what I eat perfectly. And my spouse or my husband, typically, they eat like they're trying to kill themselves but they have no problems. But meanwhile, I do everything right. And I have all the issues. Right. So if you come into a patient like that, and, and that, trust me, that's a lot of people that you'll sit and talk with. And most of them have tried nutritional ideologies. If you start telling them, oh, it's what well, we're going to change up your nutrition. They're going to say, well, I already did that. And it didn't really work for me. Now there is that maybe 10 to 33%. And I'll explain where I get those percentages here in a little bit where the problems are caused by nutrition. And that's great. Solve it that way. They, hopefully they've tried that before they even get to you. But for the majority of people that I sit with in front of me, they've already tried all those things and it didn't work. And that's why they ended up with us to begin with. So then the next most common reason, and maybe even neck and neck when it comes to nutrition is toxicity, right? Oh, it's just that we live in a toxic world and there's so many toxins and all these different types of things. Again, not untrue, but have you ever known somebody who smoked But didn't seem to have any problems. I sat with a lovely young woman and she was super mad at me because she, I, you know, we were talking about about giving up smoking, but she's like, but that's not fair. My uncle smoked till he was 93 and he had no health problems. And it's a good point, right? So if it's toxicity based, then people who get exposed to the same toxin should have the same type of problems. Now, again, when you bring these up, well, how come some people can eat bad and get away with it? How people come see people get toxicity or smoke and they can get away with it? Well, then it's like, well, they're genetically lucky. All right, so is it genetics? Is it luck? What exactly is it? And I don't believe in luck. You know, I'm, one of my favorite expressions, and I think I said on the podcast when I was with Kim, is chance favors the prepared mind, right? So I don't necessarily believe in luck. I believe that some people are better off, but There's all of these different contradictions. So we need to come up with a philosophy that's better. So let me give you another one, the fasting contradiction. I know fasting has become a huge fad within the functional medicine world. And again, there's nothing wrong with fasting. There's nothing wrong with people quitting smoking. There's nothing wrong with people changing their diets to a more healthy version. But think about it from a patient perspective. If you tell a patient the most important thing that you can do for an autoimmune disease is to fast because that will stimulate autophagy, which is important. And then in the very next breath, you tell them that this is how you're going to fix their autoimmune disease. We're going to load them up with nutrition and supplements and change their diet. I'm going to tell you right now, because I've asked these questions, those two things don't make sense. Person's going to go, how come fasting where I don't eat at all is going to be so helpful for me? But then you're telling me my way out of this is to pound myself with a tremendous amount of nutrition. Again, it's a contradiction. It doesn't make sense scientifically, but it also doesn't necessarily make sense to a patient's logic. And if they can poke holes in that, they're going to have a difficult time trusting you and or working with you. Now, let's look at one other big contradiction that I run into all, all the time here too. And this one is a bit like needles on chalkboard, but I'm going to warn you, this might piss some of you off. Because I, all I hear is, and even on my, my site, when I, I put up stuff about autoimmune and things like that, and there's comment after comment, and whether it's lay people or doctors, all you have to do is fix the gut. All you have to do is fix the gut. All you have to do is fix the gut. And I believe me, I wish it was that simple. But healing autoimmune disease is not as simple as fixing leaky gut. And I will tell you why. If you ever looked up a man named Jeff Leach and his to Tribe research, if you don't know who that is, you need to know who he is from now on. Okay, this is him right here. He is doing all of the seminal research on the microbiome that flies in the face of everything that I was personally ever taught at any functional medicine, medicine seminar that I ever went to. And every functional medicine doc that I've ever pushed on his research, who was aware of it, can't really give me a good answer. So what this guy does is Dr. Leach goes out to it and he talks to all of these tribes that live at the equator and they call him, excuse the expression. They call him the poop doctor because he gives them things like Coca-Cola, processed foods, gluten, antibiotics, you name it. He gives it to these people and then he checks their fecal samples pre and post. And what he's found is he cannot induce leaky gut in these people. And he cannot get them to have all of the same gut dysfunctions that we will typically see on what we would quote unquote call a standard American diet. So how can that possibly be? Again, are they lucky? Is it genetics? Or as you're going to see from the rest of the talk, are they barefoot outside in the sun with their shirts off? They are environmentally connected and energetically strong to where the barrier of their guts cannot be broken. And that's what we want to try to induce for our patients. And now we have the technology to be able to do that. So if you're in the world of talking about leaky gut, don't get me wrong. Leaky gut's important. But looking at Jeff's research starts to change our mind about what we're doing and how we try to accomplish solving something like leaky gut. So. I got a lot of you came up to me and was asking me questions about this concept. And, and I wasn't originally going to talk about this, but since I was so many questions and so many emails about it, the concept that I use in my clinic that I came up with to try to explain to people what the main cause of disease is, is a concept called energetic debt. Okay, that all diseases fall into this concept that energetic debt is the problem that basically we do not have enough energy. And when our bodies are not energized, we start to express symptoms and dysfunctions and eventually what somebody would ultimately call Disease. Now, I am trying to break energetic debt. I am challenging that concept every single day. Hey, would it stand up to this? You know, why if somebody smoked, would energetic debt work out? Yeah, because if they have enough energy, they can smoke all they want, it doesn't screw them up. So I am trying to break this concept. And so far, I haven't been able to break it. And patients, when I explain it to them, it's my favorite part. because by the end of it, they go, my God, doc, that makes sense. I literally sat with a gal this morning. It was her first consult with me. And by the time I was done explaining my concepts around an uh, energetic debt to autoimmune disease, which is what she had. Now, she was diagnosed with autoimmune disease in 1970. Okay, So we're talking 53 years at this point. She told me, doc, this has made more sense in the 20 minutes that we've spent together than anything has ever made sense in all the years I've had this problem. This has been more enlightening than anything else. What do we do? Right? That's the way you want a conversation with a potential new patient to go. And that was a very short period of time. So all diseases fall into these basic categories. Either that your body's not making enough energy, you're expending too much energy, or you're not using that energy efficiently. And the reality of it is, it's usually a combination of all three. But understand that we live the perfect lifestyle right now to create all of the diseases that we're seeing that are the main ones, which really the big three are, are autoimmune cancers and neurodegenerative type of disorders. So, however, one of those patterns you have, and again, it's usually a combination of some version of all three of those, when the energy loss in the body is greater than the energy gain, we're gonna have symptoms. And eventually, the, the farther that gap gets apart, the more chance someone's going to have that's going to express disease for themselves. So this is the traditional model of the sciences of how they're applied come clinically, right? So it's that the biology is the most important thing, right? You got to have all your parts. got to have all your parts. And really the chemistry is where most of the focus goes. Well, you know, traditional functional medicine and traditional medicine is basically better life through better chemistry. And then the physics is considered nothing. Right? It's considered all this top part that has nothing to do with anything. Now, not, maybe not for us because we're FSM practitioners. And basically what we're doing is apply biophysics to the human body. right? But the reality of it is, is the physics is completely overlooked in pretty much every other version of functional medicine. Right? It's all chemistry trying to affect biology. And really, both traditional medicine and traditional functional medicine are wrong. It's not saying that changing chemistry is wrong. It's saying that that's not the bottom of the pyramid. Physics, as a science, governs everything. There is no chemistry without physics. There is no biology without physics. We are basically just energized particles that look like matter, ultimately is what it comes down to, not to get too crazy scientific. But the physics governs and physics rules all of this. Chemical reactions are driven by physics reactions, right? So you can have perfect chemistry and the physics can be off, and someone is going to express ill health. So I'll give you a perfect example. Patient comes in and they say, doc, I've been everywhere. They tell me my blood work looks great, but I'm sick as a dog. So what that means is that their chemistry is in balance, but their physics is altered. And the physics trumps the chemistry. So they feel bad. Now the flip side patient comes in and say, doc, I feel amazing. I'm just here for a well checkup. You know, my, my spouse sees you and I just want to make sure that, you know, the good work you do, I want to make sure that I'm good too. And we look at their blood work and it looks like a train wreck but they have no problems. So it looks like they should be sick because their chemistry is altered, but their physics is good and the physics rules. So they feel fine. Okay. So we want to change our focus on addressing the physics first and foremost, and then we're going to be good doctors and we're going to work on the chemistry as well and the biology, but we are going to hit that highest leverage point, which is physics, right? And microcurrent really, again, allows us to do that. So the basic conversation I have around energetic debt is I tell people, think of your body like a business. Okay? And just like any single business, businesses are going to have money that they're going to expend and money that they're going to make, right? So you have money coming in, you have money going out. And the product of the business of your body, if you break your body down to very simple brass tacks, the product of your body is to constantly make new cells. Okay? That's what it's designed to do. You have to make new healthy cells. In order to move forward, right? All the things that we do essentially is your body is trying to make new cell structures. So if we're, depending upon the researcher, read, 37 trillion to 50 trillion cells, we're going to replace hundreds of thousands of cells a day, right? So if we have enough money coming in, that more money coming in than we have going out, that's good right if we have money going out that's more than money coming in that's bad the same concept applies except for the human body it's energy we're going to make a certain amount of energy we have to expend a certain amount of energy and we need a certain amount of that energy left over to make healthy cells so in that analogy people understand that now the entire purpose of this is we're going to try to replace all of these cells at some point as we go through this process so the scientific terms for this or is Number one, it's what they call redox potential. So redox potential, redox stands for reduction and oxidation. And basically what it fancy means is the body's ability to give and or take electrons, right? So back to high school chemistry, right? You got protons, you got neutrons, you got electrons, electrons are negatively charged. Our body should be negatively charged. We should have a net negative charge. If you go back to Dr. Pollock's research and his lecture from the FSM Advance, if you didn't see it, he'll talk about the point of exclusion zone fourth phase water is it allows the body to hold that negative charge. That negative charge is basically like cash in our system. Electrons in our body is basically like cash is in everyday world. If I want something done, I have to be able to give an electron to get it done. If I want lunch, I got to be able to give them cash. They'll give me lunch. If I want to detoxify a metal, I have to be able to donate an electron to be able to get that metal out. That's the given exchange. So the higher our redox potential, the more energy we have in our system and the more energy in a savings account that we have in our system as well. Now that leads us to the second part, which is heteroplasmy. And heteroplasmy is a very, very fancy word for mutation. Okay. So percent heteroplasmy means the percent of mutation. So no matter how healthy somebody is, they will make a few, maybe 10,000 cells a day that are abnormal, mutated, incorrectly made. But that's fun because we have this system called our immune system and its job is to locate and find these cells that are made improperly. Right. So percent heteroplasmy looks at this. Now, this I should specify is this is looking at DNA, but this is looking at mitochondrial DNA. Right. So we have the DNA in the nucleus of the cell, and then there's mitochondrial DNA, which if you look in the research, it'll typically specify it as mt DNA, which stands for mitochondrial DNA. So we can have 0% mutations, 40% mutations, 70% mutations. It takes 70% mutation of our mitochondrial DNA before we express a disease, like an autoimmune disease, or like a cancer or something along those lines. At 40%, we're going to start having dysfunctions, but we don't get disease. So if somebody comes in, and they already have diagnosed autoimmune disease, meaning that there is an antibody targeting someplace in their body, we know they're already at that 70% mark. Now, that's far into this, right? It gives perspective to just how b- far behind the eight ball we are starting with somebody if they're already 70% towards disease by the time that they get a diagnosis. And like I was talking about with that gal this morning, she was 52 years into this diagnosis. Now, she's virtually bedridden at this point, but these same concepts apply. So now that leads us into step three. Step three is autophagy. Step three is autophagy, and autophagy is basically your immune system's ability to heal and repair damaged cells. So when autophagy breaks, we get autoimmune disease, right? So we want somebody who has a high redox potential, a lot of energy in the system, low heteroplasmy rates, and very efficient autophagy. If somebody gets low redox, low amounts of energy in their system, they're spending more than they're making, which leads to higher heteroplasmy rates, higher levels of cell mutation that puts the immune system in a difficult spot where now cells that it would normally repair, it doesn't repair them and they go out into circulation for use. It is those cells that eventually are what get targeted by your immune system and is the causation of autoimmune disease. I will tell you absolutely certainly, as I am sitting here right now, in all autoimmune disease, you will find low redox, high heteroplasmy, and broken autophagy, or some sort of dysfunctional autophagy. How somebody, And that is the concept of energetic debt. Our job as doctors is figuring out the nuance of somebody how somebody ended up in that debt, where they're not making enough energy, how they're spending too much energy, which systems aren't working properly. That's the science behind energetic debt. But those three concepts are 100% true, and it is the causation of all autoimmune disease. And when you explain that to a patient, like I did to that gal, she was like, this makes perfect sense because now all of a sudden there's a reason why it's happening. And it's very scientifically valid and very scientifically based. I'll tell you a funny story. Actually, yesterday I got, I was on a phone call with a, a group out of New Jersey and their whole thing is they put on these seminars for innovators in all kinds of different tracks, businesses, technology, and they have a healthcare innovation section. And somebody nominated me to go talk uh, to, to be interviewed, to potentially being a sponsor to talk for them, which again was very flattering and very nice. And during my conversation with them, their concern was their number one sponsor is the local hospital system. And they're like, so we're kind of concerned if you start coming in and saying some of these things that, you know, it might upset them. So maybe we could set up a debate between the two, between you and them. And I was like, yeah, listen, I'm going to tell you this just kind of straight up and down. I might not be the right guy for you because if we debate based off of science and the available science that's out there, and you're going to put me head to head with them, it's going to be a bloodbath. Because the science 100% favors everything that we're talking about. It was really important to me when we were going to open up a natural medicine clinic and really start taking on these style of cases, that it was scientifically based. And I will tell you that there is more science here than I've found for anything else. What we do is heavily validated. It's just not something that is traditionally talked about because the traditional methods of applying that science is not there yet. That's what we're trying to change when it's what the whole reason why I volunteered to give you this extra time for this extra talk. Now, stage four is apoptosis. So apoptosis now is where you're taking a, a cell that's become unhealthy and you're saying, look, this is too damaged. It's not even worth trying to put through autophagy and repairing. Let's just replace it and get a new cell completely in there. Now, like I told you, low redox. Low energy, high heteroplasmy, high mutation, dysfunctional or inefficient autophagy leads to autoimmune. Once apoptosis breaks, then we get cancer. Okay, it is as linear as that. As sure as I am sitting here, I know that is a massive oversimplification. But I'm literally giving you the keys to the kingdom here. Is these concept is what is causation for these different different types of diseases as we move through. So, our goal when we're working with patients is to try to get them to a point of higher redox. We're trying to get them to a point of a lower heteroplasmy. We're trying to get their autophagy and their apoptosis efficient. So that will help us get them to a point of sustained health. So now my focus with them is laser sharp. We have this energetic debt. We're losing energy. We're not making enough energy. We need to make more. We have someplace where we're spending too much and we're not using it efficiently. Where is that happening? All of my attention is there. The patient understands exactly what I'm looking for and exactly what I'm trying to do. We're not saying, well, we're going to run a million tests and try to figure out. No, that is laser focus of what we're trying to accomplish, the cause of these problems at its source. Everybody's on the same page. And it makes my life significantly easier because instead of trying to learn every disease process underneath the sun, instead of trying to run all over the place and try to figure out what am I trying to approach, I am looking to fix these four pillars of problems. And that is really what it comes down to. Now, like I said, I have tactics for days on how to do all that. And again, it's not going to happen here in this two hours because one, I would never be able to do it. And secondly, your minds would melt. But but it's talking about drinking from a fire hose. But I'm, I'm just kind of giving you this idea of this big picture of what we're talking about when it comes down to energetic debt and the phases and just how laser sharp and focused this could be of, hey, now I'm using the tools that I have, microcurrent being one of the major ones to affect these different areas and make sure that this all works. Okay. So I use this analogy with patients all the time. And I love these shows. I know I shouldn't watch as much TV as I do, but I really like TV. I think it's after I read all the research I spend all day looking at and I need to kind of shut my brain off and, and just do some mind-numbing stuff because then my my brain will process all the information that I'm trying to go through and trying to get an understanding of of what to what to figure out. So when I'm looking at all of these guys here, what I'm trying to figure out is we want to make sure that it's the same concept that these guys are going to use right bar rescue restaurants hotels there was one gal who saved hair salons it's all the same stuff they do the same process they're going to flood the company with money they're going to do a cash influx they're going to clean up their books right if there's an employee stealing or something like that they're going to get rid of them and then they're going to optimize their systems and if they do those three things and they put a manager in charge And they say, hey, look, this is what you have to follow. Well, then weirdly, when you follow up, those businesses go on to be successful. It's the same thing that we're talking about with patients. We are going to find out where you're not making enough energy. And we're going to use technology that exists now to push energy into that system. As strongly and as massively as possible. Then we are going to find out where your system is wasting too much energy. And we're going to take that off of your books. We're going to get that out of there. And then we're going to optimize all of your systems. And if we can do those three things and repair as many of those cells as we can, if we can push your redox up and we can drop your heteroplasmy down and we can get your immune system working right now, all of a sudden, those cells that didn't look like you anymore, now they look like you or they're replaced by ones that look like you. And your immune system says, huh. That's us. Leave it alone. And then antibodies disappear off of lab work. So everyone says, well, how do you do that? How do you accomplish it? The main thing is I'm not looking at the immune system as enemy. The immune system has not made a mistake. It doesn't make mistakes. You have to change your thought processes. Why would the body do this, right? It's always doing it for some sort of reason. The question is why? Why did it do this? Okay, so in that sense Naris, How do I help the immune system solve the problem at hand? The problem is low energy. The problem is high heteroplasm and a lot of mutation rates. How do we solve that problem? If we solve that problem and we get the immune system stronger, all of a sudden, then antibodies and stuff like that starts going away, which is why I said my expectation is that antibodies will go away for most of these autoimmune cases that we work at, granted that the person also makes the appropriate lifestyle changes that we need them to make as well. So hopefully that makes some sense as we kind of move through this here. So that said, we want to talk about energetic inputs. How does the body make energy functionally and really, really scientifically? Okay, so again, warning, this slide might antagonize some people. 90% of the energy that we'll gain comes from our exposure to environmental sources, our connection to nature, not from food. If you ask most people, how do they get energy? They'll typically tell you it's food. It's 100% food. They have no idea that they get energy any other way. They've been taught and told over and over again that the only way that you can get energy is from food source. And while, there's, while that's true that some energy does come in from food, it is a very, very small percentage. So let me explain to you where I get those numbers from. It is designed in the human body that 66% of the electrons that we use to generate ATP are designed to come from nature. Now, that said, say okay. Well, that leaves us 33%. So, so, if you want to say 33% of all problems of these types of problems are caused by poor diet, that wouldn't be unreasonable. However, electrons that come from food, when they enter into the mitochondria in order to become ATP, the mitochondria only works at 39% efficiency, which, by the way, is still the most efficient essentially rotary engine that exists in the world. It's more existence than jet planes. It's more, uh, it's more advanced than cars, anything else. So don't take that as a knock on the human body because it certainly isn't. It is still the most efficient engine, but it is still only almost 40% efficient. Now, nature-based electrons are used at 100% efficiency. If you get an electron from nature, your body will 100% of the time use that in order for the formation of ATP. So if you've got This 66% of the electrons on the green side here and you've got 33% of them left over there. If you have 100 electrons, 66 of them are going to come from nature and they're going to be used at 100%. That 33% left over is going to be used at really only about 40%, which is about 12, maybe 13, 12 and a half, 13 electrons. So it's a lesser amount. So if people are trying to fill this entire electron gradient with just food, and not from nature at all, which is basically not the way that we live anymore. Does it make sense why we're seeing a nation that is struggling so much with obesity? Because we have to keep eating and eating and eating to try to inefficiently fill this electron void with food that eventually leads us to overeating and gaining weight. we always laugh when they put up pictures, especially to them on Facebook, which says, you know, hey, look, this was the 60s. And then this is now look how different everybody was. All the pictures of the people that they show in the 60s, they're all outside. They're usually outside. They're, they're never like in their homes. They're always outside and about is because, again, we're living a much more not just sedentary, but indoor lifestyle now than we ever have before. We're living the perfect lifestyle. So if we get enough nature-based electrons, what will essentially happen is it'll fill in this gap. And I'll give you an example. If you've ever been out and about, like my family and I went hiking uh, this past weekend. We had a beautiful day in Las Vegas. We went out to this one trail that we've hiked before. We were out for you know about two, three hours. I planned it perfectly, so we showed up at the time when the UV spectrum of light was going to be perfect and we would get the most bang for our buck because I'm crazy like that. And it was a gorgeous day and we did all of it and it was so funny because when it was all over, you know, we were typically past the time that we would normally have lunch. I even went out fasted um, because I tend to fast uh, during the day. And when we went out to do all that sort of stuff by the time it was ready for lunch, even my kids were like, nah, I'm not really hungry because we were getting so much electrons. If you've ever been outside for an extended period of time, you just notice that you don't think about eating or you're not looking for it is because you're basically getting enough sustenance. Now we will need food sources in order to get raw materials to build the body and fill in some of that stuff. So I'm not saying food is not important. I'm not saying nutrition is not important because I get that a lot of people say, oh, he's anti-nutrition, he's anti. No, I do that with my patients too. I just understand how much of a piece of the pie that that represents. And if we only do that, We're going to have a cap on how many of these people we can get to the ultimate goal, which is people want antibodies gone, right? People want certain outcomes that are really high. It's it's part of the reason why I think microcurrent, everyone's so attracted to it once they get into it is because, well, hey, this can do things that we weren't really able to do before. And this is the reason why. Okay, so we want to be outside of just that net 12%. So where's the other 90% of this energy come from? Well, this is what we talked about at the seminar, but again, it's what we call the six levers, Okay, the six levels, the six main sources of energy where this is going to come from. So we have bioelectromagnetism, and we're going to go over all these a little bit. Again, in the six-hour talk, we'll go into them in heavy-duty depth, probably more science than you ever wanted. Biofrequency, which is really where microcurrent sits in. Bioconduction, biophotonics, biooxygenation, and biohydration. Okay, so let's pull these apart one at a time. Biofrequency, I I spent a lot of time at the seminar talking about this because this is really where microcurrent fits in biofrequency is what allows our body to create a level of direct current. And if you've been in microcurrent for any length period of time, certainly heard Carol talk about the body electric and Robert Becker's work, and he talked about the reason that salamanders could regrow their tails after they were cut off was they carry a tremendous amount of direct current, way more than we do as humans, which is why they can regenerate a limb that's lost and we can't. However. If we see alterations in the direct current of the human body, we know we are gonna see slowed cellular regeneration rates, which is why we see using microcurrent where we're basically putting in a direct current and on top of that, using frequencies to adjust the body to do what we want it to do, to influence the body to do what we need to do, to put it back into balance and harmony. If you do those two different things, you'll see changes in tissues really fast. This is what we call smush, right? That's what we call science. You're changing the direct current level to those organs specifically. This is really where microcurrent comes and play a major role. Now, something like bioconduction. And by the way, I based this talk off of what questions did I get <laughs> after, you know, what emails ask me? What questions do people grab me in the hallway and ask me? Everyone's like, so those six, those six sources, like, can we look those up? Where do we get them? So some of the words, words that I'll use, they're scientific. So I figured I'd just give you a quick recap of what they are. So now, bioconduction is basically how do we get electrons in from the outside to begin with. It's it's actually pulling electrons in. We talked about electromagnetism is charging those electrons. Frequency is about tuning those electrons. Now, we have to get the electrons actually into the system in one way versus the other. This is no different that you have to have contact. The cell phone has to be on that induction pad in order for it to gain charge. This is what people refer to when we talk about grounding, right? You want to be in contact with the earth, feed on the earth so that you're able to get electrons. One of the seminal laws of physics is that energy flows from the highest point to the lowest point, which is why people feel so much better when they go on vacation. Now they're like, oh, I got away from work. It was a stress relief. We were just having fun. And that's all part of it. But there's also the other bigger part of it when you look at the fact of, okay, not only was that, where did they typically go? Oh, it was at the beach. It was outside. We were walking around. We did a tour. We did it. Usually, it's not that they're cramped inside all days. They're usually outside connecting more to nature. Have people play the game. Say, close your eyes. Okay, picture your happy place. Go to your cave. Go wherever wherever your happy place is going to be. The vast majority of people pick stuff that's outside in nature. Right. Rarely anybody says, oh, I'm in my, you know, my office with the fluorescent lighting looking at my computer. They rarely say that. They're like, oh, I'm at the beach or marketing completely understands this. Look at TV commercials. If they want you to buy something, they always the person is, you know, they're telling you about the pharmaceutical drug that has all the side effects that, you know, make your eyes bleed and your arms fall off or whatever they are. And, you know, the person is doing what? They're frolicking barefoot through a field in the sun. Because they know that our brains equate that to that's where we feel best. Now they've they've tricked us and said that that's not where we feel best, but we know that, you know, oh, the person's in the waterfall, you know, they're under the beautiful waterfall. They're at the beach relaxing versus where, you know, if they don't want you to do it, they're trying to put it with something negative. Person's in the cold, the wind is whipping against them and all those things are going to cost your body electrons, not push electrons into your system. Now, if you've had a cell phone for any length of period of time, a smartphone especially, you'll notice that the first thing that goes bad in any of those smartphones is going to be that the battery dies the battery life, even if you don't have hundred windows open, the battery life will get shorter and shorter over time. And if you open that battery up and you look inside, what you would see is the battery will start forming crystal formations. Okay, Just like you see on the, on the picture on the left. And just like you see on the car battery on the right, where you start to get crystalline formation. When you get crystalline formations, it's a low energy system. And that system can't hold energy into its system to begin with. So in the human body, this is how it looks. So on live blood, you will actually start to see particles, crystalline particles floating around in their blood system. Okay. That is basically the same idea of a low energy system, the same way you would see with a cell phone that's running out that you're going to have to trade in, except you can't trade this body and you're going to have to deal with it. So if that little sucker gets stuck in your kidneys, it's what we call a kidney stone and it hurts like anything gallstones, kidney stones, uric acid, any crystalline formation that will show up in the human body is a major sign of low redox and is a major sign of a system that is in severe energetic debt. So with bioconduction, one of the other things that's, I think, really important to talk about, and and one of the questions somebody asked me on one of the Facebook pages was, you know, can I talk about the role of microcurrent when it comes to detoxification? So, and and one of the questions was even, I think the same question was about detoxification and SIBO. So for SIBO, see Jeff Leach's work, because that will blow your mind on what he's talking about when it comes to SIBO, because it basically means that we are mistiming in our gut. But when it comes to detoxification, remember the role. Redox controls detox. Detox does not control redox. That is why people get hurt reactions or they die off too hard. In my world, you know, I, get, I know in, in a lot of uh, homeopathy and old school, firstly, when I first came up, people would be like, yeah, I did this detox and I felt terrible. And I thought I was going to die. It was like the greatest detox ever. And as I, I mean, you know, when I was younger, it made sense. Now, as I'm older, I, I see it a little bit differently where I'm like, look, you just did things out of order. Redox controls detox in order to detoxify, like I was saying before, if I want to get a toxic heavy metal out of my system, I have to have an electron to be able to donate to that, say, hey, pay this off to get it out of here. So you need to build currency. You need to build the system up, which is something that FSM is really fantastic at doing because it's the energy in the system that denotes how well somebody will be able to detoxify. If somebody has toxic loads, when I look at you know testing and stuff like that in different ways that we do it, if they have high levels of toxicity... For me, it doesn't mean that they're toxic or to where there's, you know, there are more exposure. Now, there's stuff that they can do. They can have fillings and dental. They can smoke. They can do things. But for most people, it's not that they have more toxic exposure than other people. There's plenty of toxicity in this world. What it means is they don't have the energetic capacity to deal with it. Just like the 93-year-old uncle who was smoking and got it in, getting away with it, it wasn't enough to put him in energetic debt. He had enough electrons to throw at that cigarette in order to not put him into debt where he could waste his energy on that. So always remember that when you're looking at it from this perspective, if somebody's detoxifying and and closing hard like that, we don't want that. We want to make sure that we are always able to detoxify because we have enough energy. If somebody is detoxing too hard, we went out of of turn. OK, so just be aware of that in the relationship to detoxification. So biophotonics, biophotonics, the, the study of light in the human body is basically could be really the entire six hour talk, let alone the entire two hour talk. But but to kind of go through this quickly enough, man-made blue light, basically indoor artificial lighting is probably the greatest threat to human health than anything else. And it, it's probably neck and neck with, you know, EMFs and 5G's and all that sort of stuff. And probably depends on the day you catch me. I'll kind of go back and forth between the two. But the more now, as I've I've kind of sat with the science more, that blue light is really starting to ring more true to me as being the greatest threat. Because this is how most people spend their nights. You know, there's a famous quote that says, you know, we're we're the only uh, creatures who were smart enough to create artificial lighting and the only ones dumb enough to live under it. Because light sculpts the way that our body times things, right? So now we have electromagnetism for charge. We have frequency for tuning. We have conduction for gaining. Now we have light for timing, right? Basically, and when we get into the melatonin portion of this, when we talk about the Archimedes levers and we get to melatonin, this we will get more into this, but the use and the exposure and not exposure to light is paramount for our health. So we also have oxygenation and It comes down to very simple ideas. Is we are most efficient when our body is using oxygen for fuel, right? It is the optimal fuel source that cells will generate ATP and energy from, right? So I made the comment earlier when we drop to a certain voltage, when we drop to plus 20 millivolts and we get to plus 20 millivolts and that creates cancer within 48 hours. The reason why that does it is at that level of voltage, the cellular, intracellular oxygen levels will drop below 65%. And once the voltage drops to that point and the intracellular oxygen levels drop below 65%, meaning ATP is being created by 65% of it's coming from oxygen and 35% is coming from something else, that cell is gonna turn cancerous on you and it's gonna turn bad on you and it's gonna dysfunction, right? So oxygen, now we knew this, Otto Warburg, 1954, did his seminal research and won the Nobel prize saying that cancer exists in a low oxygen state. This 65% does not mean if you put a pulse ox on somebody, it's going to show 65% or lower. What Warburg said, if you actually read this, and this is misinterpreted quite a bit, but if you actually read Warburg's research, he will say it will be cancers in the presence of when a cell is in a state of hypoxia, even though oxygen is available. And it's a state that they kind of refer to as pseudo hypoxia now, where it's a low oxygen state, but... It is be, in, in the actuality, the oxygen is available. It's not that they're not breathing enough air and they're just the cells are not healthy enough. There's low voltage, not enough electrons, whatever the case may be. They are not able to utilize that oxygen to efficiently make energy, right? So it's a different thing because if, it, truthfully, if it was just low oxygen, curing cancer would be very, very simple because all we'd have to do is hook people up to oxygen and pump their oxygen levels up and they would get better. It's not how it works, unfortunately. Because if we burn oxygen to make ATP, if you think of this like miles per gallon in a car, you'll get 38 ATP per oxygen that you will use, right? So that's 38 miles a gallon. If you don't, and you're using some other source, which is basically sugar, you get two ATP, right? So that is not equal and the same, right? It is a significantly different portion of this. And this is where, again, I've caught a lot of flack for talking about this, but I don't really care because the science is what it is when I've said that cancer is an adaptive solution to help the person survive. You know, when you start changing your mindset to why would the body do that? I could never understand, and, 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 you know, coming from a natural medicine background, saying, you know, the body will always do everything to heal itself. You know, they're like, oh, that you have a tumor and it's being, you know, there's growing blood vessels to it and it's trying to revascularize and that's going to kill you. And I kept thinking to myself, why, why on earth would a human body who's designed to heal and function, build vasculature? Why would it bring blood flow to something that's killing me? That doesn't make any sense. doesn't sound like the system that I know. And it wasn't until actually I got into deuterium research, which I'm heavily into now. We talk about a lot in the other programs, but that I really came to this understanding is it's really just, it's something that your body grows to try to energetically adapt in a weak environment because they're better than nothing cells, Right. 38 is great. Two is significantly less than 38, but guess what? Two is more than zero. So your body has two choices. It can either stop making cells and we make no ATP and you die fairly quickly, or it can say, look, we'll make two ATP. It's better than zero. But if we have to get 38 miles, the goal is to get 38 miles. We can make one round of ATP through oxygen and get 38 ATP, or We can do it through sugar or another source fermentation and only get two ATP. Well, then we need 19 cells to make two ATP each ATP each in order to make 38 cells from one. Does that make sense? So you need one cell to make 38 ATP, but now you need 19 cells in order to make two. Does it make sense why now cancer is rapidly reproducing cells while your body starts rapidly making these unhealthy cells? It's just trying to make as many twos as it can. Needs 19 twos to make 138. So your body starts rapidly turning off all of these mechanisms to protect against doing that so that you can try to make energetically make ends meet. It's it's literally a Hail Mary in order to try to keep the person alive long enough, hoping the economy turns. It's just trying to buy time. Now, things aren't going to go well. The person's going to get sick. You're not going to function real well at two, but it's better than shutting the business down right now. So this is the Hail Mary aspect of it. Your body is literally just trying to buy time. It's all it's ever trying to do, hoping things change. We have the capability now of being able to manage, look, evaluate all of that and change those things with some of the technology that's available to us. So, you know, I don't want to spend too much time either on biohydration because Dr. Pollock, you know, wrote all the research on this. And, and a lot of this is, is his ideology anyways. And, and going back to, to Gilbert Link, who we also spoke about at the advanced So if you have a chance to watch that um, uh, lecture he gave or, um, you know, watch it again, because there's a lot of hidden nuggets in there too. I watched it last year and I watched it again this year and I still got more notes off of it this year than I did for last year. The ability to have exclusions on water allows us to extore external energy inside of the body. And we really want to be able to do that. And this is part of the idea of why we need people hydrated in order for microcurrent to work for them right? Because we need them to be able to drive energy and not just drive it, but they need to be able to store some of that energy to use at a later time. Otherwise, we run into the jacuzzi effect where a person feels good in the moment and they feel good while they're getting this energy built up. They feel good while they're in the jacuzzi. And then when they get out and they get back into the cold air, they they feel just as bad. Their muscles tighten up. They feel just as bad as before they went in the jacuzzi. We don't want the jacuzzi effect. We want to be building energy, sustained energy, redox potential, a savings account, over the course of a period of time. So again, there exists this fourth phase of water that we've amazingly, something like water, which is so basic to our existence and we've known about forever, we're still learning new things about it every single day. And I'm always fascinated like guys like like Gilbert Ling could, you know, back in the sixties could conceptualize all of these ideologies. And then somebody like Dr. Pollock can bring it to the forefront today for us to see. So hopefully all of that makes sense from these bigger pictures, because now well, while, while microcurrent really helps in the frequency side, we have all of these ways and technology in order to be able to bring all of these solutions to the table for somebody so we can really re-energize somebody very quickly. There's fast ways of getting electrons into their system. You know, there's fast ways of balancing out their frequency. We can re-electromagnify everybody so we can reinstall that proper electromagnetic field so things are working the way that they're supposed to. We can retime them to day and night using ideologies and light and all those different types of things. You know, we can make sure that they can uptake the cellular oxygen. We can make sure that we're getting a creation and internal portion of fourth phase water into their system. These are really high energy leverage points. Whereas if you can do this, you're going to cut somebody's healing perspectives down really significantly. And I know there's a lot of doctors out there, researchers talking about biophysics and, and all these different ideologies, And and this can be something that can be done by connection to nature, but it would literally take somebody years. You know, they say that the average person for a mild to moderate problem would take them seven plus years in order to be able to deal with all of this. And that's basically living to get healthy. And that's not what we want for them because it's not realistic. They're not going to be able to do that. We have to be able to put them in a situation where we can optimize what we have in as short of a period as humanly possible and teach them, hey, look, this is how you have to run this business from now on in order to keep everything going the way that you want it to. So with that idea, now we've got, okay, we've got our, our basically our four pillars of health, right? We've got, we want redox, we want energy in the system, we want low heteroplasmy, we want low amounts of mutations, and we want the immune system to be really, really efficient at apoptosis and, and autophagy, right? The better your system is at, understand that probably 90% of your immune system activity is devoted to autophagy and apoptosis. We tend to think of it, and patients tend to think of it the other way around, where your immune system, all it's doing all day is fighting infections. It does that too. You know, It'll fight infections. It'll fight COVID. It'll fight all those different types of things. But the main job of your immune system is this very elegant janitorial service, which is cleaning up cells and doing quality control of cell structures. So hopefully that makes some sense. And, and, you know, at this point here, kind of I'm gonna take a quick drink of water here, but I wanna move into these ideas of, okay, now we're looking at that. How do we take energy and go into the transmogrification of that? And I'll give you all a second while I drink my water. You guys can look up what that word means. So one of my favorite words of all time, basically, how do you take energy or something technological and make it look like magic? right? So it's basically the use of magic. And this is what we kind of wrote down to, and we call these the Archimedes levers. So uh, the five Archimedes levers is, if you don't know who Archimedes is, is Archimedes says, if you give me a lever and a place to stand, I can move the world. And I named it that for A, because it was catchy and kind of cool sounding, but B, it was because these were the five high leverage points that if you can manage and affect these different levels, it can make huge difference for patients. And what I was really kind of taken aback by was the more I studied functional medicine and the more I looked into all these different types of things, and I wanted to get this idea of how can I move the curve a little bit faster for them. I was shocked that nobody in all the functional medicine training I did, nobody talked to me about me. And I was really upset by that because I was like, man, all the research is there. I, I joked around the seminar saying every time I think I'm smarter than I am and I go into looking at, all right, you know, um, I wonder if anybody's drawn this connection that I think I just personally drew. And I go on PubMed and there's like 200 studies that they proved it years ago, back typically back in the 90s. And I I saying, man, everybody knows this, but we're not doing anything about it. Right. They typically say that we're 18 years clinically behind the research. And, and frankly, like I said, most of the research I find is from the 90s. I think 18 years is incredibly polite. I think we are way further behind than that. So I think we owe it to our patients. And, and again, if you're on this, I mean, obviously you're into microcurrency, so you're, you're on that same path. We owe it to our patients to act like it's 2023. And we have more at our disposal now than we ever had in the past. So. I think the reason that these Archimedes levers were never really taught to be in functional medicine or looked at was because they were things that were typically outside of the nutritional scope. They weren't things that we had supplements for, or that they were just low in this and we could give them something to push their levels up. This was things that required influence, and we were trying to indirectly influence them, but now with microcurrent and some of the advanced technologies we have, we can actually directly influence them and it makes all the difference in the patient's world. So, with that being said, the five Archimedes levers is our melatonin leptin msh so one through three these are the three in my estimation again in my opinion three most important hormones in the human body okay which pretty much nobody talks about i was actually kind of taken aback because at the seminar i asked at the fsm seminar i asked who looked at msh as a marker to re- measure target and see where it can move somebody And all of that people there, I had two hands go up. Now, maybe some people were being shy and they just didn't want to, you know, engage by that point. Probably in the lecture, they were probably pretty well fried too. But two hands went up. And one of them is my client who I trained in all of these processes that I use for beyond functional medicine. So she knows it because I taught it to her. I was kind of taken aback, but I'm not surprised because I didn't know it either. And I was really mad and nobody ever told me about it because if you change MSH levels in patients, you can create a miracle for them. So we're going to talk about all these individually. Vitamin D, massive, massively important. And then UB rates. And we'll get into what UB rates means. UB rates basically is how your body manages protein. And massively important because most of your cellular structure is protein by weight. So that's what we want to look at. Understand that all of these guys are completely and intimately linked to each other. If one is off, the rest of them will be off. So that's what makes the tactics of evaluating all these guys a little bit difficult because MSH might not be out of range, but it also might not be working the way we want it to. So there's a little bit of reading between the lines when you're looking at all this. Some of it is just pure quantity quality issues, right? Somebody's low on melatonin or, or if their leptin levels are too high, if their MSH levels are too low, vitamin D, obviously their levels are typically too low. There's some of those ideologies, but you have to make sure they have enough that they can use what they have and that it can be charged so that it's used effectively. So there's actually three layers of evaluation that need to happen rather than just looking at highs and lows. Very easy once you know, You know, like Carol says, it's easy to walk on water when you know where the stones are, but you gotta look at those three levels as you go through this. So these guys allow us to change functional medicine from doing the 80% of the work that gets 20% of the results. Patients will complain about this all the time doc, I can't stick to this diet. It's killing me. Like it's way too restrictive. Doc, they've dumped down this huge bucket of supplements on top of my you know, desk and doc, I, I take all these things every single day. I can't keep doing this. What can I do? How do I change this? That's the ideology of 80% to get you 20. How do you do 20% at the highest levers, right? We need a lever to move the world to get us 80% of the results. And that's where these guys fall in. Thank you for listening to the FSM podcast. Tune in next week for the exciting conclusion of Dr. DiMartino's part two of this webinar presentation. The Frequency Specific Microcurrent podcast has been produced by Frequency Specific Seminars for entertainment, educational, and information purposes only. The information and opinion provided in the podcast are not medical advice, do not create any type of doctor-patient relationship, and unless expressly stated, do not reflect the opinions of its affiliates, subsidiaries, or sponsors, or the hosts, or any of the podcast guests or affiliated professional organizations.